From its first days publishing as a daily in 1861 until well into the 20th century, the Oregonian existed as a newspaper by white men for white men. Its white supremacist worldviews, excusing lynching, supporting segregation, stigmatizing people of color, help shape the state today. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. Last week, we heard from editor and vice president of content for the Oregonian and Oregon Live, Therese Bottomley. This week, we turn to a family that was directly affected by the Oregonians' racism. Up next, investigative reporter Rob Davis takes the mic. In the second half of the show, Rob interviews Zachary Stocks, the executive director of the Oregon Black Pioneers. But first, Rob chats with Vicki Nakashima. Vicky's dad, Ted, wrote a searing piece for the New Republic in 1942 about his experience in a prison camp during World War II. Ted Nakashima was a second-generation Japanese-American who was imprisoned without due process, one of 120,000 people nationwide, two-thirds of whom were U.S. citizens like Ted. Shortly after his magazine piece, The Oregonian sent a young reporter to an Oregon prison camp. The story downplayed the horrors, saying, quote, a vast majority seemed to consider their detention a vacation, unquote. On October 6th, Bottomley apologized to Vicki Nakashima for the xenophobic article. Here's Rob and Vicki talking about the story. Vicki, thanks for joining us today. Tell me what it meant to you to finally see this story told. Rob, it's been a long journey, and um, it started as an article when I was probably eight years old that I didn't entirely understand and has not ended yet. I mean, I, I today got an email from someone who's uh, a relative of one of the Oregonian owners who has been involved with the Pittock Mansion and, and a number of his family's activities saying, telling me how he felt about it and the history. So it's affected a lot of people. It's affected me, but I guess I kind of knew what the article would say because it was coming to a great extent from me. But I've been kind of surprised and delighted by reactions of people I know who've read it and, and wanted to share. One thing that's noteworthy to me is that nobody has said, oh, I'm so sorry, I feel terrible for you. They've said, oh, your family so deserves this opportunity to have the real story told. And it's been so important for all of us to hear it. I even got an email from somebody who said, I should read it to you. I can't, it's not here in front of me, but that Every Oregonian ought to read this, read about this so that they know. Because even though we've lived here and went to school and studied some of this, it's news to most of us. The story that your dad wrote in 1942 for somebody who's just coming to this, you knew as a child that was important. When did it become clear to you what it was? And can you talk about kind of how your parents? talked about the incarceration as you were growing up? Well, 
As I mentioned in the article, I think it must have been in grade school where I felt it the article was something I should be proud of, even though I'm sure I didn't understand it or even maybe could have read it to understand. And no one had really explained it to me. But my father and mother, you know, allowed me to take it to show and tell. And I'm sure that must have been a bit of a worry for them in a predominantly white, perhaps all white community where I went to school to come and share something that may have been controversial, particularly in nineteen in the 1950s. It had probably, I've not carefully, carefully read it. I knew the, the bullet points. You know, I knew, knew all the key points. Some of them didn't seem particularly harmful to me. And I laugh now because I find some humor in what you wrote in addition to the pain and, and sorrow. Um, you know, the fact that my father would write about um, the silverware or the dishes or the condition of the food, I could relate to, I can't make it through the night without going to the bathroom after nine o'clock. I mean, I could relate to that, but um, some of the other things have have been sort of a mystery to me. And I have learned since that article um, has been discussed probably since 2010, that um, very few, there's not much recorded in the Japanese American history, either at Densho or the National Museum, about the food or the conditions. A lot of it had to do with the hardship and the really outstanding things like the dust coming through the walls to the extent that they stuff newspaper in it to stop the dust or, you know, how did they try to clean up the smell because it was an animal stall at one point. So I guess that um, a few of those things until some of the reporting that you did and and discoveries that, yeah, the silverware and the dishes weren't so clean. I mean, who would have imagined? Who would have dreamt? I mean, it's hard to even fathom that that could have, um, could have been a point that Number one, somebody would want to defend that they they wanted to defend it bad enough that they had sent somebody in to look at it to see if there was an excuse for that or if they could discredit my father for saying that to the point of, okay, the dishes were dirty. You know, that's not acceptable to anybody. Put me in your shoes when you read the Oregonian's coverage of your dad's writing, prison camp conditions, and the, the language and the word choices that the newspaper used then? Well, it was shocking. You know, I didn't know if the reporter had been someone you know, that he had the freedom to write his own opinion and it was published that way or um, whether it was a campaign to discredit 
the Japanese American community. I, I honestly got really focused on why would the Oregonian write about my father? Because as far as I knew, he and my mother were in Puyallup, Washington. There were relatives down here, but they weren't implicated or mentioned in the, in the article, or did they take a stand on it, as far as I know? So I, that was a mystery to me. Why would they do that? So some of it just didn't, didn't fit together. I mean, it was sort of like, I don't know it was, if it was denial on my part or, or um, I just didn't take the, the gravity of what my father did so seriously. And it wasn't until you started doing research and finding that the war authority and the army did take it so seriously. I mean, I, I might have imagined that the Oregonian rebuttal appeared months after my father's article, but it was pretty shortly after his article. So he riled enough people up to be concerned, and that led to the concern that my father's experience at Thule Lake may in fact have been a lot worse than we would have ever imagined. Let alone, I, I didn't, I hadn't established that he actually did go to Thule Lake with my mother. And to this day, we, we don't know whether he was jailed in one of those cells that my cousin depicted in his art pieces, or, uh, or if he was in another part of the uh, Thule Lake encampment. Can you tell me how this has affected your view of journalism and newspapers? Well, let me start with um, my history. I've been in Portland since 1967. I can point to some examples over the years. I, I, I remember one where Kent Ford, the head of the Black Panthers, was portrayed um, doing something terrible to a health clinic that was the Free People's Health Clinic, and the image made it seem like he was the bad guy. And he was innocently standing in front trying to remove medical equipment that I think Legacy had given them to have a Free People's Clinic to treat children. So I had this image that the Oregonian was racist, and I have to tell you that it wasn't until about a month ago that I subscribe to the Oregonian. I might read it online through Oregon Live, or but I I felt like, and I I do feel that there are a, a good number of people in this community, people of color, who would say, at least in the past, the Oregonian doesn't have a good track record for fairly covering issues that affect people of color. The other issue is um, even over the past couple of days. Um, comment a comment made by, I wonder how many people of color they hire now. And if they're hired, where do they go if they don't stay? Why do they leave if they don't stay? So, you know, I think there's, there's a ways to go. I have had many very favorable comments about Therese and the courage it must have taken. I guess I didn't imagine she would just stand up and take that kind of stand. It was unequivocal. It was 
bold and brave to me. I mean, people have asked, do you think people above her are going to punish her for that? I think that's her job. You know, that's what journalism's about. I mean, it was clear from the reporting that, I mean, within two or three days of the story that he authored in the New Republic appearing in print, that the war leaders were talking about, okay, what do we do about this person? And 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 the 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 tone that you see is not one of how do we fix the problems that he's identified, but how do we knock down that type of criticism and ensure, and ensure that that does not become the dominant narrative. There's a well-known Japanese proverb: "The nail that sticks up gets beaten down," and often Japanese Americans have been. Um, of the belief that, you know, you pull yourselves up by the bootstraps and, and make a path for yourself. And clearly, there's some embarrassment, I'm sure, on the part of some of my family members, that my father wasn't going to do that. And on the one hand, you might say, that took a lot of bravery and courage and um, and risk to stand up. And others would say that was foolishness. He, he should have never done that. Maybe he jeopardized other people in the family, or maybe he, the repercussions would have not only affected him, but others in the family who maybe had proven themselves loyal. Um, not that he hadn't. Everything that was known about him was... Um, that he was loyal. He was born in the U.S. He didn't speak Japanese. He was studying at the University of Washington in the School of Architecture. Um, they had just built a new home for my mother and father and Seattle. I mean, they were living a, a, a life that met every standard of acceptability. He even said, we even had highballs on Friday nights, which I can imagine. I mean, they were really fun people, um, and and um, and and enjoyed life. And the, I guess the um, comfort I feel from all of this is that I never knew my father to be bitter. He wasn't an angry man. He, he loved fishing and hunting and um, the outdoors, um, and he loved his family and took care of business and did well in his career. So I, I really now greatly appreciate if I had gone through that, I think, <laughs> I think it wouldn't take much for somebody to say, oh, what was camp like? And I'd launch in after them verbally, but he never did that. Their, their lives were completely upended. Very true. And as for 110,000 other Japanese Americans, I mean, the stories just in the past month, I've, I've heard stories told to me about people who were 
bankers who were Japanese that worked for a, a, a bank and dealt with Japanese clients, they were in a special camp. If you look at the map of where all these internment locations were, there are a number of them that had nothing to do with the Japanese on the West Coast. They may have been people who were suspect because they were in certain lines of work or even in the case of um, Isamu Noguchi, a very well-known uh, artist, he went volunteer to go teach art at one of the internment centers because he sympathized with with his other Japanese American friends and and artists and creative types, and they didn't let him out. They let him in to volunteer to teach, but they kept him there. And I believe he was part of the impetus for the state of California to apologize for whatever happened there. So it wasn't just, you know, they, were, they found other pockets of people that they thought were a threat. And I'm not sure what kind of evidence they had to do that. Because we know now that there wasn't a great deal of evidence to warrant removing 110,000 Japanese people of Japanese ancestry. But what did I think you wrote? Two thirds of them were Japanese Americans born here. Afforded no, you know, due process. No, I mean, the Constitution broke. You know, it just didn't apply. Therese Bottomley, the editor of The Oregonian, apologized to you earlier this month. What did that mean to you? You know, I can't sit here and hear you say that without crying. You know, I, I didn't expect it. Um... You know, I think it may have been more of a, you know, from the very beginning in 2010, I think the first thing that came to mind is, doggone it, the Oregonians should apologize for this. I can't think of any reason that this is, this is right. And I said that over and over again. I think when I first met you, I said, I th you know, the or I think the Oregonians should apologize. I just cannot find a reason that this kind of journalism is acceptable, either then or now. Um, Therese, I had never met her, and she was sitting in front of me to the right, and, and she was very quiet. I don't think I even talked to her before she sat down. I mean, I, I may have talked to her just to say hello, and I got to meet her, but I had never met her before. And she sat down very close to me, and she didn't say anything. But I noticed she was writing, and I thought, gosh, why is she writing? I kind of thought, that's interesting. Why is she writing, jotting notes? I thought, maybe she's going to write a story. And then out of nowhere, she stood up in front of me. And, and of course, my cousin, who is here with the show, the artist from Virginia, um, was sitting next to me and, and 
the JAMO art creative director was sitting on the other side and we just were stunned. We had not, we weren't sure what was happening. And then she apologized and you know, I don't think there were many dry eyes. I it really did occur to me that some of the people in the room were people we invited who may not have even seen the show yet, but kind of understood from the invitation why they were there or why they were invited. This is an art show that your cousin Tom has contributed his his work to that's on display at the Japanese American Museum of Oregon. So the first showing of this exhibit, I think, was in Kansas City. And there are not a lot of Japanese people in Kansas City. So it was really important that it got booked in Portland, Oregon, especially where Tom's family is from. Tom's father, I'm named after, his name was Victor Nakashima, and he was drafted before the war because he, he went to school and trained as a surgeon at the U of O Medical School. So he served in the army and had to come and visit his parents in the internment center at Minidoka at Minidoka. So it had great meaning, even though we don't have many family members still uh, living who are here. But it, it had there are many connections. My gr grandfather was a a journalist here in Portland. He wrote for a Japanese-American newspaper that translated news into Japanese so that the Japanese who had immigrated could stay current on the news. So he had been a journalist all his life. He was a journalist in Japan and then came here. You said that the apology doesn't right or wrong, but it does correct the record for future generations. It's so true. I'm, yeah. Seems a very powerful statement on it. One of the harms that I think our generation, my generation, and the Issei and Sansei and Yonsei behind us have experienced is that our families have not been willing to talk about their experiences. The stories we've heard, for the most part, are that's where so-and-so got married. That's where Johnny was born. That's where my parents learned to dance. And they may have had one dress-up dress. They didn't even say that. They may have had one. They, they would dress up and, and have little parties in their unit. So that's what we heard. I don't think, I mean, I hear stories regularly from Japanese Americans who say, I want to know more. And um, and the family won't share it. I, I remember one story of a younger woman, probably in her late 20s, um, who said that she had asked her, her grandparents for to see a scrapbook that they had kept and kept in a, in a chest. And they scolded her for not for asking to see it. They didn't want to share it. So we've been we've been really robbed of that opportunity, um, and hopefully stories like yours will make us more determined and persistent in asking.
I remember one story of a young woman I was on a panel with who was also probably in her 20s who, who shared that, um, that she grew up in a predominantly almost all-white community and she's biracial. And um, her mother or father was Japanese and the other parent was Caucasian. And she said, I grew up because I could pass and I wanted to fit in. And I spent until high school, until college, trying to fit in and be accepted. And since going to college, I spent my life trying to reestablish my Japanese American heritage. And to me, that's a very sad story. You know, why can't you have both? It's a traumatic topic, a source of a lot of pain for a lot of people that spans generations. How do you balance that against the need to tell those stories? My parents and many of, I think, our relatives or people in the Japanese American community, it wasn't until the apology from the president and the efforts to um, to gain reparations for what they lost. Um, often people assume my parents and most of the 110,000 people got a check for $20,000, but that too is not true because it took many years for that appropriation to end up being passed and made available. My parents never got any of that money or did any of, I didn't get any of that money. We weren't eligible. I wasn't eligible. Um, But it wasn't until that probably the apology and the recognition that there was an effort to try to repay for some part of what they lost. And many people lost everything, you know, except what you could carry. Um, so, you know, that to me is just, you know, it's just burned in my memory that it wasn't until that apology that our parents and relatives started to talk about it and started to be more active about what happened to the Nisei vets who served. Are they being treated well? and that they are willing, you can go a month ago to the opening of the um, the highway that's named after the Nisei vets in Hood River, and there were many elderly people who found their way to be there for that opening. And it makes me wonder if they would have done that 30 years ago or 20 years ago. So for me, I I feel in a way that's my apology. You know, that now I feel that I've been liberated to a certain extent of of the guilt or shame I thought maybe I should feel, even if I, you know, wouldn't want to admit that. But it is freeing. And in the past day or so, I've had people say, I am so grateful that you said what you said to the Oregonian. 
And I am so grateful that the Oregonian apologized. You know, it means so much um, because I, I think most of the people that, um, that I'm quoting would have never dreamt that would have happened. And it wasn't because I tried to sue the Oregonian or beat them up or, um, but, but, you know, to tell the story and to have it proven, I think almost every little piece of my father's article has been proven to be true. He didn't lie. He didn't exaggerate. You know, even about the silverware being greasy, he didn't exaggerate. And I wouldn't have blamed him for exaggerating about dirty silverware or dishes. I, I want to thank you. There is power in story and in storytelling. And um, I feel like your your story is exemplary of the the power of of telling a story so thank you thank you for joining us today thank you for telling your story i appreciate it it wouldn't be a story if it hadn't been for you and beth thanks let's take a break then we'll hear from rob and zachary stocks uh, zachary thanks for joining us today um so let's start kind of high level here oregon black pioneers tell me about the mission and what the goal of the organization is the mission of oregon black pioneers is to research recognize and commemorate the history and heritage of african americans in oregon so we're a historical society and we work through exhibitions and public programs we do events all over the state um, some creative projects and a lot of collaboration with uh, nonprofit organizations museums and some businesses all over every part of oregon Tell me what draws you to that work. Well, for me, I, I come from museums um, and I have always wanted to be in history education as a career. Uh, I was very fortunate to be able to be hired for this position during the pandemic. Um, so it meant a lot to be able to have meaningful work that was career aligned um, at a time when everybody uh, was losing their jobs. But what actually motivates me to do the work is the fact that we can connect with our ancestors through the presentations that we give or through the exhibitions that we develop. Um, for me, that is a huge part of understanding who I am and my place in the world is knowing about people who have overcome adversity and made a life for themselves and their families here in Oregon. Um, so I'm very inspired by uh, historic Black individuals, and it motivates me to try to press forward and uh, find new and creative ways to share their stories. Oregon founded as the only free state that in its constitution explicitly excluded black people. Tell me how those founding ideals of white supremacy shaped the Oregon that we live in today. Well, it was huge. Um, and first to clarify, while Oregon was the only state to enter the union with a racial exclusion clause in its constitution, the language of Oregon's exclusion came from other states, which had already enacted 
similar racist legislation, but just not at the point when they were entering the union for the first time. So in a lot of ways, the racial climate in Oregon is really reflective of the racial climate of America. And the anti-Blackness that you found in the Oregon Territory and in the early state of Oregon could have been found in Indiana or in Iowa or in Missouri, right? So how white supremacy impacted Oregonians and Black Oregonians in particular is that really they were shown that this was another place that was going to be off limits to them. This is already at a time when most Black people in the United States were still enslaved, right? And for the few free Black individuals who had the means to choose where they would live, they didn't necessarily have the freedom to pursue those opportunities without repercussion. They would be facing the potential for violence, for being kidnapped and extradited to slave states uh, under the guise of the Fugitive Slave Act, whether or not they'd actually been an enslaved person who'd run away from slavery or not. Oregon provided some sort of a refuge from those things because of the physical distance between other states where slavery was permitted. But even here in Oregon, there was slavery. Now, when the Oregon Constitution was ratified and Oregon became a state, that was the end of legalized slavery in Oregon. But nonetheless, it also included Black exclusion. So there was really no opportunities for Black people to come and experience uh, all the benefits that Oregon advertised itself as having in the same way that white people had. And of course, all of that built upon indigenous land theft in the first place. Your organization has uh, an exhibit right now at the Pittock Mansion talking about the uh, Black people who settled in Oregon despite the exclusionary efforts from 1840 to 1870. Tell me how uh, those families, those people, individuals found their way to Oregon, you know, and found a way to settle here despite the efforts to keep them out. So between the different laws, which we collectively know as the Oregon Black Exclusion Laws, some of them would be repealed before the next ones were ratified. Those created grace periods by which some small numbers of Black individuals could, or families, could come to Oregon legally. Um, and once they were in Oregon, they were exempted from subsequent exclusion legislation. So that created this early Black community, if you can really call it that. I mean, they didn't all know each other and spend time together, but we have this handful of disparate Black people living in the Oregon Territory because of just the uh, chance of when they happened to come here. Now, most of them came here not on their own free will, but in service to white families. Some were enslaved, most were free, but were domestic laborers or farm laborers working for white people. And so they traveled on the Oregon Trail and came and helped to establish the farms of many of the early white landowners, whose names now grace a lot of uh, geographic place names and um, rivers and um, counties even, right? Um, well, there were Black people among them too, living on those same plots of land. But the Black individuals who came here did not have the opportunities to claim those uh, land 
did not have the ability to claim land themselves as white people did. Tell me about the goal of putting together an exhibition like that. I would say the goal is just to let people know that there is a history of early black individuals in Oregon, because so often it seems like we have to dispel the rumor um, that Oregon is a place that never had many black people. Um, But our history here doesn't begin at World War II, right? There's literally never been a single day in the history of non-native inhabitation of Oregon where there weren't black people here, uh, going back to the earliest arrivals of non-native people. And so this exhibit is really an opportunity for us to show people photographs of named, known individuals, black individuals, who were here during the so-called pioneer era. Um, so that when you think of, you know, who were the people who traveled on the Oregon Trail and came and became part of the early communities um, of Oregon, just knowing that there were black people there, I think has power. Is that a part of Oregon's history that has been taught? Not very well. (laughs) I mean, I suppose these days people are becoming more aware of the fact that there's actually a long history of many different racial and ethnic groups represented in this place that we call Oregon. Um, But when you look at the images of the pioneer era, you see the same faces. Go to the Oregon State Capitol and look at the murals. Try and count the number of, uh, you know, people of African descent or uh, try to count the number of Chinese people you see in those murals. You're not going to find them um, or Hawaiians. Right. But all those people were here. You participated in the review of the project that we just finished. Thank you for doing that. And thank you for your feedback. Uh, I found it really valuable. Um, were there parts of this story that surprised you? Is this all known to you? No. In fact, I was really surprised to see that uh, the use of the N-word was pretty much a parallel with the tenure of Harvey Scott, and that when he had left the paper for five years to take a position at the port, um, the use of that word pretty much stopped. And then after he returned to the paper, it doubled. Um, So I think that that's a pretty clear indication that, you know, this is not just Uh, an example of, oh, this is the common language of the day. This is how people talked back then. But rather that this is an intentional choice made by people of power um, to denigrate and uh, ridicule people of African descent. Um, So that was a real surprise. And uh, I really appreciated seeing that in the article. It it strikes me that there's no point in, you know, that, that, that Harvey Scott was who he was and that there's no point in, you know, his arc from 1865 to 1910 when he dies, you know, even as, uh, you know, the, the sentiment is evolving and society is like inching toward becoming more inclusive, right? You're coming out of slavery into the turn of the century and and through all of that he is still saying right that black people shouldn't have the right to vote that even 40 years 35 years after they were given that right after black men were given that right um well he certainly wasn't alone um to me whenever it comes to discussions about historic newspapers the question is always are the things that i'm seeing here a reflection of the viewpoints of society or 
are the authors of these things promoting an agenda that they're hoping their readers will adopt themselves. And without polling back then, I mean, we don't really have a way to know for sure which one it is. It's probably a bit of both. Um, but other early papers of this time period reflected similar sentiments. And so even after the Civil War was over, even after the Reconstruction Amendments, um, you'll find in Oregon's papers uh, just awful language directed toward uh, Black men because of their ability to vote now and just humiliating things that they say about what their votes will lead to um, or the ways in which they were supposedly not deserving of this right, which the Constitution now guaranteed. What can somebody who's coming to our work and somebody who's digesting this history and, you know, ingesting the trauma of it and coming out of it in, in the moment that we're in, like, what do you do with that? I think maybe this is just a lesson understanding about how media works. You know, recognizing that there are people behind the stories you read, that there are choices being made among editors which determine what is going to hit the print, right? So these words don't appear out of nowhere. There's, there's decisions being made that lead to it. Um, so today, I mean, as we look at, uh, you know, the sources of information that we get to understand our current political circumstances and the things that we face, uh, maybe this is just a way for us to recognize that um, we have to read very carefully. Uh, we have to double check sources and we have to understand that there's bias embedded in the things that people write. One of the things that struck me, we've got a, a photo in the series, Portland in 1854, and it's a sort of collection of little wood buildings. From the moment that Portland was this handful of buildings, the narration for that from its inception was done through a lens of white supremacy. And that as Portland became more than that handful of small wood buildings, as we grew, as our, as we developed, and as we built our housing structures, our healthcare systems, our system of laws, that it's ingrained in not only what we were, but what we became. Yeah, I mean, it's very clear that white supremacy is uh, part of Oregon's identity. Um, it is every bit as much a part of Oregon's history as uh, any particular uh, community or movement or event, right? Um, I often remind people of the fact that all of the black exclusion laws came at a time when the black population in Oregon was well under 1% of the total population. So why would they have devoted time and energy uh, to exclude and marginalize a population that was negligible? Um, and the reason is because the presence of black people in any number was a threat to the white society that they wanted to create for themselves alone to enjoy. Um, black people did not fit in with this dichotomy they had created of colonized colonizer. There were these 
Americans who were coming here as well, but they didn't have the same rights uh, or status as white people. And the only way to prevent some uncomfortable conversations around who deserves to be a part of Oregon was to make sure that no one other than white people came here. Um, so that is that is the history of Oregon. And if you haven't learned that history, then you really haven't learned Oregon's history. You don't know about Oregon if you don't know about Black Oregon. One of the books that was most valuable to me in my work was really hard to come by at the library, uh, Peculiar Paradise uh, by Elizabeth McLagan. Tell me what you all are doing to make sure that there's not uh, another three-week wait to get it at Multnomah County Library. Yeah, it's uh, it's hard to find. It's kind of a collector's item now, um, but not for long um, because we are very fortunate to be able to bring that book back to print. Um, we are republishing the book and a new second edition uh, with some additional content, um, and it's through Oregon State University Press, and we're actually releasing it on November 1st. Um, so it's very exciting. Uh, people will be able to purchase this book once again. And I'm certain that there's going to be a lot of demand because as you pointed out, this has been sort of the resource for decades um, since it came out in 1980. And it remains probably the most comprehensive history of Oregon's early black history. Um, so we're really proud to be able to bring this back to print. The author, Elizabeth McLagan, will actually be at the uh, unveiling, the, the debut of this book on November 1st. Um, so it's it's a very exciting opportunity for everyone. Maybe I should have introduced it more, but tell tell a listener what that book looks at and and what the story is. Yeah, so A Peculiar Paradise is a history of Black Oregonians going back to 1788 through 1940. So as I understand it, um, the Oregon Black History Project, which was a um, community efforts to sort of compile Black history back in the late 1970s. This was sort of their magnum opus. Um, and it was really an attempt to show how far back Oregon's Black history actually goes. But like I find very often, a lot of people assume that there really were hardly any Black people in Oregon before World War II. This book really demonstrates uh, that not only were there black people here before that, um, but you could find black people in every corner of Oregon doing every sort of labor related to Oregon's traditional industries. Some were very prosperous. Some faced incredible hardships. It's a great resource. And uh, we have a new forward from uh, an Ameris board member of ours, a new afterward by the author, and additional context included as footnotes. So more information that can actually be um, revealed about the text that you're seeing there. But otherwise, the text itself has been retained in its original 1984. Great. Zachary, uh, I want to thank you for your time today and for your time spent with the series. I found it exceptionally valuable. And thank you. Thank you, Rob. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. To comment on the Publishing Prejudice Project or to share a story idea, email us at equity at oregonian.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 
221-8055. Until next time.